Good morning. I always feel like I'm breaking up something that should be happening when I'm like, all right, I better start church. But, you know, I really think that this is maybe one of the worst things in a congregation that we could overlook, though, is just saying good morning to each other, reminding each other that we see each other and that it's good to see each other. We just had almost a year of not seeing each other, and it was excruciating for those of us that were blessed to be extroverts. For those of you that are secure in your own skin, I'm sure it was just fine. Anyhow. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. We are continuing on in our story of God and man together. And we are now into the second half of the book of Esther. Esther, goodness, Ezra. We did Esther last time, sorry. In the book of Ezra, Nehemiah and Malachi, which I teasingly say is the Italian prophet Malachi which is not who he is. He's Malachi. So something that struck me, and I was, I was aware of it before, but I didn't realize the exaggeration, not the exaggeration, but the extent of the timeline between the fall of Jerusalem until years later when they rebuild the temple and even more years later when they rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. So from the fall of Jerusalem until the rebuilding of the temple is 70 years. This isn't a couple of weeks, it's 70 years. We talk about that period of time, and if people are like, well, how long was the exile in Babylon? Well, it was 70 years. Well, yes and no. Though the temple was finally rebuilt after 70 years, but it took them 20-something years to rebuild the temple from the time the first wave of people returned. After that, you have a second return from exile under Ezra, which happened, oh goodness, 58 years later? Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, sorry. So it's a lot of years, though. <laughs> That's what I'm, what I'm catching. From the time that they rebuilt the te temple until the time they built the wall around the city of Jerusalem was 71 more years. So it's 141 years from the time where Babylon tears down the wall around Jerusalem until they rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. So for 71 years, the temple was built, but there was no wall around the city. It was just kind of exposed to whomever. So I am in Ezra chapter 7, talking about Ezra, of course. Now, after these things, which we talked about two weeks ago, I believe, though where the temple was completed and dedicated, now we are on to chapter 7. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sarah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amira, the son of Azira, 
the son of Meriath, the son of Zeruiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Bukai, the son of Abeshua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. So he's in the priestly line of Aaron. This Ezra came up from Babylon and was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord, his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethium, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And again, this is not right after. This is several decades later than the first group of people went to rebuild the temple. This is several decades later. This is a different king. This is a letter, or this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, the expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, the, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And whereas you are to carry the silver and gold, which the king and the counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of the God of Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, lambs, and their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and to offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And where whatever you may be and whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the regions beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also, we inform you, that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, excuse me, and or servants of the house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as known 
as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of good or imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. So that is Ezra 7, where he now has favor from another king to put the house of the Lord in order so that people are worshiping properly. And do you notice that King Artaxerxes says that the wrath of God might not be against me or my sons? So this isn't necessarily because he converted, but he knows there's a God in Israel and he does not want to be on his bad side. As I read through the Old Testament, I'm oftentimes taken by the reverence that pagan kings will show for God they don't worship properly just because they've seen him angry. And it makes me wonder how flippant we have become as people who truly believe in this God. This is still the God that made kings tremble when they ruled the world. I was talking to a gentleman yesterday, a very nice man, but he kept using the Lord's name in vain. He probably did it about 30 times in an hour conversation. And it made me wonder how flippant we have become as a society. I was actually convinced he probably didn't believe in God just off of that interaction, or he couldn't possibly be so flippant with his name. But I don't know. I don't judge the heart. God does. But to go from King Artaxerxes, who was not a good person, I'm going to go ahead and throw that out there. King Artaxerxes, not a good guy. Overall, he was afraid of the God of Israel. Why aren't we? He had an enormous territory. He was like rich beyond measure. He was afraid of God. Why aren't we? Or are we, but we don't think about it? Well, let's think about it. From there, we're moving on to the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah actually doesn't show up until the third return of exiles in, 40, or in 445 BC. Now, that date, again, is 141 years after the fall of Babylon. So Nehemiah shows up 141 years after the people of Israel went to exile. He is that third wave back from, from exile. So we count the Babylonian exile as being 70 years. In reality, some people were in exile for 141 years. So what Nehemiah is most concerned with, though, other than the fact that there's no wall around Jerusalem, and this baffles him because they have a temple now. It's been 71 years since there was a temple. And there's still no wall around Jerusalem. The people are still kind of doing whatever. 
and this upsets him, obviously. I'm going to start, actually, he hears that there is no, no wall around Jerusalem and that Jerusalem is kind of in shambles. He is in the service of uh, King Artaxerxes. Okay. And it came to me, or it came to pass, in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took wine and gave it to the king. Now it had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? And I just realized I gave you the wrong date, possibly. But that's okay. Anyway, it's a long time. That's the important thing. The king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. So now the king knows he's upset, and people in front of the king are supposed to be happy, right? So why are you upset if you're not sick? And now he's afraid because he showed his cards, so to speak, and the king knows he's upset in his heart. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire? So from here, the king tells him, we'll go rebuild them. Just that simple. God has shown him favor again, has shown his people favor again. And he goes to Jerusalem and gets everyone to work on building the walls. Now, because they're constantly being messed with by the people that are there, he has half of the workers hold a spear and half the workers continue to work so that they're guarded at all times. And they build this wall in breakneck speed, really, to the point where everyone around them is sure that God has helped them. But they put the wall up very hurriedly, and they're able to defend the building from, the, from their enemies or people that would see them or would like to see them fail. Because just about everyone around them, all the kings around them, all the rulers and governors around them would like to see them fail. No one likes to have a neighbor that's powerful and that God is looking out for. They become much harder to down or, you know, to remain downtrodden that way. So even some of the, the local governors try to convince Nehemiah to come meet them someplace in secret to discuss things. And he's like, no, you, you wish me harm. So he ignores these letters several times. Till finally one of them sends a message to him that's, it's not sealed, it's open so anybody who comes across it can read it, if they know how to read. And he brings it to him, and it's basically threatening to tell the king that they're trying to raise Nehemiah up as a king. And how they're going to revolt against the king. And Nehemiah actually responds by saying, none of that is happening, you're making it up out of your own head. And he just lets it go. He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't send a frantic message to the king. He's just like, this is nonsense. The king knows it's nonsense. I'm not even going to, not even going to respond. You're making it up. And looking around in life, I think that you see a really great modeled behavior here when you're in the right. If you're doing something good, people will always be talking about it, either positively or negatively. If they feel 
they feel threatened by what you're doing, they're going to raise anxieties. Well, I know they're doing this, but what if? Or do you think they should have that much money? Do you think that they should be working on this project with those kind of people? Do you think they can handle it? And I think that Nehemiah shows us that sometimes the best thing you can do is, well, nothing. Well, you're just making that up. And he just continues doing what he's doing. And God blesses him. He doesn't have to worry if people are saying rumors in the neighboring kingdom. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Sometimes the best defense is to do nothing. Ignorant people say ignorant things. Pray for them. It must be hard to be that person. Can you imagine having nothing better to do than to make up stories about someone else? Can't be mad at people that have nothing, can you? If that's all you have, that person needs a lot of prayer. So in chapter 8, Ezra reads the law to the people because he's noticed that they're not really following the law. They haven't been living the way they should. And there's an overlap between Nehemiah and Ezra, actually. There's an overlap between them where Nehemiah actually speaks of Ezra, and Ezra reads the laws to the people, and then people explain the laws to people, and they take a whole day to figure out where they're going wrong. And that's in chapter 8. And on the second day, I'm all the way in verse 13, I'm sorry. I'm trying to cover several books of the Bible in, well, so far it's been almost 18 minutes. So, broad strokes, people, please read this on your own. You have the very oracles of God, probably several copies at home. You will be blessed. Please read them. Or turn on your phone, let it read to you. You'll notice in scripture a lot of times it says, blessed is he who hears these words. If you needed a loophole because you don't like to read, turn on your phone, have it read to you. There's been a lot of great Christians in this world that could not read. Get those scriptures in your head, however it takes, whatever it takes. Get those scriptures in your head. Anyway, we're in uh, chapter 8, verse 13. Now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to uh, um, Ezra, the scribe, in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they didn't know about this. They've been in exile. So they find out about the Feast of Tabernacles this way. Then the people went out and bought them, and they made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or in the courts of the house of God. And they opened the square of the water gate, the open square of the gate of Ephraim, so that the whole assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day the children of Israel had not done so, and they were very great with, or they were, there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast 
seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So Ezra brought them back into a more godly form of worship, as did, as you see in the book of Nehemiah. I'm now jumping to Malachi. If you would jump with me to the book of Malachi. Malachi is even later. Malachi is actually a contemporary of Nehemiah's, but he didn't write until later, they figure. What Malachi is doing in his book is Malachi is asking the priesthood to stop it. He's asking the leaders of the community to stop doing ungodly things. They've become complacent. And you actually get this really applicable set of writings from Malachi where you can read this, this book of Malachi, and just about every word of it will apply to us as individuals or us as a church where what he is saying it should be sobering, actually. The book of Malachi starts with this, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Israel, beloved of God, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and rebuild desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. And here we get into chapter 6, where he turns it away from Esau's bloodline back onto Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But, if, but then I am the father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, priest, who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Now, I find this to be exactly where we are. And it's where we've always been, probably. He is addressing the priesthood offering not the best, but actually sacrificing blind lambs or lame sheep to God. It's supposed to be a spotless lamb. It's supposed to be perfect. How much do we do this? Do we give God what's left over from the surplus of what you gave me? 
Or do we give him our first fruits? Do we give him our very best? And I am as guilty, if not more guilty, as anyone else doing this. But I don't know if any of us could say that we give God our very best all the time. When we offer something to God, maybe we should be thinking about, would I, would I offer this to my fancy guests? If everyone was looking, is this what I would be giving to them? Well, why am I giving it to the God of heaven then? In Sunday school, in the book of Haggai, or Haggai, he talked about working with defiled hands, how it defiles your work. And I see that again reflected here. When we are doing things, what is our motivation to bring things before God? You can live like the devil and do a mission trip every year. You can. You can live at the bar six days a week, come to church on Sunday. What fruit do you expect to see out of that? How are you honoring God with your time, with every moment of your time? We have this false idea that we have categories where this is God's and this is mine and this is God's and this is mine and this is my kids and this is God's. It's all God's. It's all God's things. Every moment that you are awake, you are ministering, whether you want to be or not. Every moment you're awake, you are ministering, whether you want to be or not. When I am frustrated as a father and yelling at the park or at the horse barn where people can see me, I am justifying what I'm doing. It doesn't mean that I'm going to stop yelling today. I've been thinking that in my head for years, and one day I will. But my reactions say as much about my faith as my job title does. Isn't that guy a pastor? Man, he's got anger problems. Isn't that guy a pastor? I just saw him blow through that stop sign. Doesn't he pay attention? Right? Now, replace pastor with, isn't that guy a Christian? Isn't that lady a Christian? Aren't they supposed to be like a good Christian? They go to church like every week. Why are they doing that? Why are they living like that? We even do it to each other. Or what's even more damaging is, well, they're doing it and they're okay. I've been guilty of that a lot in my life where you see another Christian doing something that you're not supposed to be doing, but they're doing it too, so you feel justified just for a moment. We become our, our sinful security blanket. Like, well, they're way more godly than me, and they're here too. There's a heart condition that people have always had. 
this isn't just a Western church problem. This isn't just a modern problem. We have a heart condition when it comes to worship. We make idols out of everything. We decide that we can do this and do this. We can justify just about everything. But should we? I would prefer for myself, and I'm sure you feel this way, I would prefer to have my religion not be a list of rules that I can or cannot follow, right? Or a list of things, well, I'm not allowed to do this, and I'm not allowed to do that, and I'm not allowed to do this, and I'm not allowed to do that, right? Some of you grew up that way in your parents' house. Well, I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I can't do this. But there's always two ways of looking at things, at least sometimes three, my way, your way, and the right way. But if we're looking at things closer to the right way, God has called me his child and given me everything I will ever need. And all I have to do is seek after him and follow him as closely as possible. That's what I get to do. I don't even have to worry about a list of things I'm not allowed to do. All I have to do is consider, does this bring me closer to God? Well, there, that just took care of it. Love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength. And love my neighbor as myself. That is ten commandments that you can't follow rolled up into two. That is 613 laws we can't follow rolled up into two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Life is incredibly easy. All you have to do is wake up in the morning, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and go back to bed. Do it again tomorrow. Life's incredibly easy. Where is it? I think we all know that that's the hardest thing that you will ever try to do. But we're together. You had people come back and rebuild a temple after 70 years. And we've been looking at in Bible study uh, in the recent history about living stones, how the church is a temple made of living stones. We are those living stones. So this work that was started by the people of Israel, we can see a reflection of how Jesus wants us to live as a church in this. We're rebuilding a temple, a place to worship. It starts with that. And then they protect each other and they refine it. And then they get really intricate on, well, this isn't how we're supposed to be worshiping. So we should be building this church with living stones and we should be protecting each other, keeping each other sharp. And then we should be refining how we worship. There's a model here that still applies. It's every bit as true as when it was penned. And I do appreciate you going through the minor prophets at a breakneck speed. We're actually in the New Testament next week. Is anybody else excited for that? I sure am. 
We're actually in the New Testament next week. And I feel like I should address the fact that today is the 4th of July, which is incredibly important in my life. It holds really deep significance because it's the birth of the mother of my wife. And without her, I don't get my wife or my daughter. And I think that's pretty special. Not to mention she's a pretty nice lady. It's also Emma's birthday. It's also America's birthday. And I can't think of a country I'd rather live in or I'd be there. America's been very good to us. And that's as much of their worship service that America gets from me this morning. But it's been very good to me. And I thank God that I was blessed to be born in a place where I can worship as freely as I choose at all times. That is worth celebrating. But like I said, that's as much of the worship service as I'm giving to America this morning. But I think, I think that uh, I've really enjoyed going through these prophecy books far more than I expected to. And I've seen Jesus in these prophecy books far more than I expected to. So as I come to a close of this, it's almost bittersweet, though I am really excited to explicitly be talking about Jesus, not implicitly finding him in all scripture, which I think is important to do. <sighs> but if you can do so without pain, can you stand with me? Father God, I thank you for the oracles that you've given us, for your words that you have given us to get to know you, that we have the privilege to get to know you and that we get to follow you. Father God, I pray that you would forgive us for our complacency and our idolatry and our anger and all of these silly things that we put in front of what should be all that matters. Father, I pray that you would bless us. I pray that you would bless our neighbors. I pray that you would help us be lights to the community. I pray that you would protect the people that are playing with gunpowder today. I pray that you would bless all these family gatherings. I thank you for the families that we get to meet with. I pray that you would bless us and keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that brings us to our time of announcements prayer and sharing, which will be led by Mike Catalfi.